48, final chapter of the Acts story. We started this story a little bit more than a year and a half ago, February of last year, and now we come to the final chapter this morning. Now, I had originally prepared to preach the whole chapter of Acts 28 this morning, and that would have uh, made us done with the Acts story and on to the next thing, but last night I just changed my mind and decided we're just, we'll just look at the first half of Acts chapter 28. So that means that after this morning, we have one more message in the Acts story, and then we're done. And the question is, where to after that? Well, what we'll do after that is something different, something I don't normally do. I've been asked on... In different contexts, different situations, I've been asked to preach on a particular topic, and so I think it's probably time to do this, and that topic is the afterlife. So what we'll do is we'll take a few weeks after next week, and we'll just look at all the relevant, topic, all the re- relevant passages to the afterlife. We'll take one Sunday, and we'll look at a biblical view of death, and then we're going to look at a biblical view of biblical understanding of the resurrection, and then we'll take a Sunday to what uh, I'm sure is going to be your favorite topic. We'll look at a biblical view of hell. And then we'll take three or maybe four Sundays to understand a biblical view of heaven. We'll pull out all the relevant passages and we'll see what those passages have for us. I am uh, continually surprised to find so much misunderstanding among God's people about what it is that we are to expect and what we are not to expect in the next life. And so we're going, to, we're going to look at all those relevant passages and we're going to uh, make sure that we have a thoroughly biblical understanding of what comes after this life. So we'll take a few weeks to do that. I would think maybe two months or so and then we'll be on to another book study after that. But this morning we are in the final chapter of the Acts story. If you want to use a pew Bible, it's page 936. Chapter 28. We remember from last time we finished up chapter 27, the Two-week-long hurricanes finally subsided. The ship crashed against the rocks. And now Paul and his 275 shipmates have all been washed ashore on this island. They've been saved through this horrendous northeaster, this hurricane storm. God's providence has provided for their salvation through the storm because Jesus Christ made a promise to Paul that He would unconditionally, He would stand before Caesar to proclaim the Gospel. And so Paul knows that he must get to Rome. And so Paul has uh, made it through the storm as well as all the sailors. None of them were lost in the storm. And they've washed up on shore here at the end of chapter 27. The last verse of chapter 27, we read this, "...so it was that they were all brought safely to land." Then beginning from chapter 28, verse 1, we begin with these words, "...after we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta." So they wash up on this island called Malta. You probably know of Malta from the Humphrey Bogart movie, the Maltese Falcon. But Malta is a tiny little island about 18 miles long, 8 miles wide, and it's just off of the toe of the boot of Italy. So picture in your mind the boot that's Italy, and right off of the toe is this tiny island, Malta. And that's where they wash up on the island of Malta. And then verse 2, the native people showed us unusual kindness. Now you probably have a footnote there where it says native people. The word that's translating there is the word barbaroi. It's where we get our word uh, barbarian from. Now when we think of barbarian, we think of somebody that's cruel, warlike. But the the original meaning of that word was not warlike or warmongering person. It was simply to mean a person that didn't speak Greek. All non-Greek speakers were called barbaroi or barbarians. And so... We make a connection right away because Paul 
said that these are the very people that he's indebted to to preach the gospel. In your sermon notes here from Romans chapter 1, he wrote this about three years earlier. He said this, I'm under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians or to non-speaking Greeks or non-Greek speakers. I'm, I'm obligated to both Greeks and barbarians to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel to him. So Paul is washed ashore with, on this island of barbarians or Maltese and these are some of the very people that Paul is indebted to to preach the gospel. So the native people, the barbarians, showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. So not only have they now survived this two-week hurricane on the sea and now been washed ashore, now it's cold and raining. Remember, the month now is October. So a cold rain is coming down. The native people see them. They show them this unusual kindness. They welcome them onto the island. They build fires for them. And then verse 3, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire. So we notice there the, the servant mentality of Paul. Paul is no different from the other 275 sailors. He's been on the storm, on the open sea, lost at sea for two weeks, just like everybody else has. And yet, while everybody else is washed ashore, he takes it upon himself to gather wood for the fire. Reminds us of the servant mentality of Jesus. The upper room as He served the others. It didn't deserve for him, uh, to, to, for him to serve them, but nonetheless, He served them anyway. Paul's the same way. He has that servant mentality. He's gathering a bundle of sticks to put them on the fire. And a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on His hand. Now, right at that sentence there, probably half of us have chills going up our back. When we picture in our mind a viper or a snake coming out and latching on to Paul's hand. The snake was was revived from the fire and comes out and latches on, on his hand. And, and, and like I said, probably, I don't know, maybe better than half of us are thinking, no, that's, that's an image I could do without. You know, I'm always continually surprised by the differing reactions to snakes. Among all of God's creatures, have you ever thought about people's reactions to snakes and how strange it is? People have the strangest reactions to snakes and they usually fall in one of two categories. One, they... They are abnormally fond of snakes and they try to make pets out of animals that are not pets at all. I remember back this spring, I was in Raleigh driving on Capitol Boulevard and I kid you not, there was a car driving on Capitol Boulevard with a snake hanging out the driver's, seat, driver's side window. The window was rolled down, his, his arm, the driver's arm was up on the car door and a snake was hanging out the car door and then come and came and wrapped around the fellow's head. And the guy was, would pet it every once in a while. And this snake was not a normal snake. Uh, Brother Richard is sweating over here. Is it because of the snake images? But this was not a normal snake. The, the girth of this snake was at least the size of a man's thigh. This was a huge exotic snake that this guy was just driving around like a pet. You know, like a, like a dog that might sit in your lap when you're driving around in your car. So some people have that reaction to snakes. They try to make what is obviously not a pet into a pet. But then other people have the other extreme reaction, an, an illogical sort of hatred of snakes. My mother is that way. She absolutely hates every snake that has ever been born. It matters not what kind of snake it is. And she'll immediately kill every snake, whether it's a, a black snake or a green garden snake. or She'll kill every one of them just simply because she hates them so deeply. And that's an illogical hatred of the, of the animal. We have right now, at least I know, at least one snake living under our house. And I'm glad it's there. I don't want it to leave. Because as long as it's there, we don't have a mouse problem. But some people have this 
incredible fear of snakes. Even men that are, that are not afraid of anything else will sometimes bolt at the sight of a snake, even, even a harmless garden snake. So we seem to have these really strange reactions to snakes. Maybe it's rooted somewhere in the fall and in the curse when God cursed the serpent and said He'd put enmity between your seed and the woman's seed. Somehow, maybe we've made that connection. But in any case, probably most of us are having this picture in our mind of this snake holding on by its fangs to the back of Paul's hand and we're, we're kind of got the heebie-jeebies over that. Well, Paul wasn't none too bothered about it. He just flung the, the, uh, the snake into the fire. But first, the native people made notice of this. Verse 4, When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, though he, hasn't escaped, though he has escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. So the native people see this, this viper, this snake that bites onto Paul's hand, and they jump to a false conclusion. The conclusion is, since this bad thing, this poisonous snake has bitten this man, obviously, he's a bad person. A bad thing has happened to him, so he must be a bad person. They jump to this conclusion, which is not unlike so many of the other conclusions that we see people jump to in, in the pages of Scripture. John chapter 9, remember the disciples. They see the man that's born blind, and they say, Jesus... Who sinned here? Was it this guy or was it his parents that he was born this way? And Jesus says you're jumping to a false conclusion. Or the same thing with Job's friends. That was the whole struggle in the book of Job was because all these bad things were happening to Job. Job and Job's friends were both assuming that this is because I've done something bad. They were jumping to these false conclusions that when bad things happen to people, it's a result of bad things they've done. Now, as Christians, we need to think through this carefully because the Scriptures do teach us that whatever we sow, we will reap. Paul says to the Galatians, don't be deceived, God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he'll also reap. But we also remember that Scripture always has an eternal perspective. And so when Scripture tells us that whatever we sow, we'll also reap, it doesn't usually mean in a one-to-one -one correlation in this life right now. Sometimes it does. Often it can mean that. But we have no warrant, we have no grounds to jump to a conclusion that says, when I see bad things happen, that means that this person must have done something bad. We must guard ourselves against these false conclusions that we jump. And we all do that, don't we? We know that sometimes bad things happen to good people and vice versa. And we know that we live in a fallen world. But yet sometimes we will see people who are in the midst of a trial and don't you just at least wonder, I wonder, I wonder what brought that on. I wonder what they did to bring that on. You may never say it out loud, but don't you think that sometimes? We can jump to the same false conclusions as the native people do. They say, he must be a murderer. Yes, he escaped from this storm. But by the way, they knew all about because they experienced the storm too. So he's escaped from this two-week-long hurricane only to have a poisonous snake bite him. So he must be some sort of some sort of murderer or bad person. And so, verse, uh, verse 5, Paul, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. And then, verse 6, they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. Isn't that funny? They didn't offer to help him or anything. They just were waiting for the guy to fall over dead. So they were waiting for this to happen. But when they had waited a long time, they saw no misfortune come to him, so they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So they now jumped to the opposite false conclusion. 
This man was bitten by a poisonous snake and nothing bad happened to him, so he must be some sort of a god. Which is now the second time that Paul has been mistaken for being a god. Remember back in Lystra, they mistook him for a god there. So they jumped to the same false conclusion here. Since something bad happened to him, but he didn't die or didn't even get sick, then he therefore must be a god. But this reminds us, the instance of the snake here reminds us, I think of two things. First of all, as we said, be careful not to jump to false conclusions. We all know that we live in a fallen world, and we know that God works through this fallen world in ways that we sometimes understand, but usually don't. Let's let's all admit that. When we look at the world around us, more times than not, it does not look like a sovereign God is in control of this world. And so we know that He's working all these things for our good, but we don't know how, and we don't know when, and we don't know in what way. And usually we don't even know what our own good is. And so we guard ourselves against jumping to those false conclusions when it's related to other people or related to ourselves. We see the Christian who praises God and thanks God because their husband missed the flight that plunged into the sea. And at the same time, we also see the Christian who mourns because their husband made it on that flight. And we don't understand that. And we're not supposed to. So we guard ourselves against false conclusions. But also, the second thing we see in the snake is we see the providence of God. See, the providence of God didn't stop when the storm was over. When Paul was washed up on the shore, the providence of God didn't end there. It still continues on. Paul has been promised that he will stand before Caesar to proclaim the Gospel. And that means that a storm or a viper is not going to stop them. So the providence of God continues. In fact, we see the providence of God working in an even more profound way through the snake. Because what happens with the snake is actually a door to the Gospel is opened up for these Maltese people. Because now that this has happened, the Maltese natives are now much more open to hearing the Gospel message from Paul than they would have been before. They now think he's a god, and Paul's going to correct that in their thinking. But they are at least now more open to hearing the gospel than they were before. This is a gospel opportunity that has come to Paul through the snake. It reminds me of another story of another gospel opportunity that came through a snake. It appears that there was once a, a small country church like ours, about the same size of ours. And in this church, there was one particular family that was very faithful to this church. They were always here, always plugged in, that sort of thing. But then, just suddenly, they just dropped out. And they stopped coming, and and people wondered why, and everybody in the church called them and went by to see them and sent them cards and letters and everything, but they just weren't interested in coming back to church. And nobody really understood why. They just didn't have time for that anymore. Well, then one day, one of the sons in the family was outside, and he was bitten by a rattlesnake. And it was a rather large rattlesnake that got a very good bite on him and injected quite a lot of venom into the son, so they rushed him to the hospital, At the hospital, they did everything they could for the snake bite victim. But as you may be familiar with snake bite victims, there's there's only so much that you can do to counteract the venom, the poison that's in them. So the hospital and the doctor had done all that they could. And finally, the doctor told the family, this is all I can do. Either he's going to make it or he's not going to make it. The only thing that you can do now is pray. And when a doctor says that the only thing that you can do is pray, suddenly everybody gets a whole lot more spiritual, don't they? And so this family that had been out of church now for months and months, when the doctor says all you can do is pray, they pick up the phone and call the pastor. So the pastor comes over to pray. And of course he prays 
for the boy. And his prayer goes like this. Father, we know that You are more powerful than snake venom and we know that You can deliver this, this boy from this snake bite if that would please You. And we ask You to do just that if it would suit Your will. But we also thank You for this rattlesnake, Father. Because this rattlesnake has done what nobody in our church could do. And that is turn these people's heart back to You. So we thank You for this rattlesnake. And furthermore, we ask You to send us more rattlesnakes. Gospel opportunity was opened by the bite of a snake. That family probably didn't appreciate that prayer too much, but eternally speaking, they would appreciate that snake. Same thing happens here. A gospel opportunity is opened through a snake bite. Paul takes this opportunity, speaks the gospel to them. Verse 7, Now in the neighborhood of that place there were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, he healed him. Reminds us of the story, doesn't it? In Mark 1, where Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. Same kind of thing here. Paul, is, Paul and the others are invited to the house of Publius, the chief of the island. Find out his father's very sick, sick unto death. Paul heals him. And uh, the healing is, of course, miraculous, right? Which reminds us, by the way, when was the last time we saw a miracle in Acts? Been a while, hasn't it? The last one we saw was way back nine chapters ago in chapter 20 when Paul raised Eutychus from the dead. That was the last miracle that we saw in the story of Acts. Now, remember the first half of the Acts story? It was miracles all the time. Left and right, miracles all the time. Then those miracles seem to have just died off and we go for eight or nine chapters there with no miracles at all. Remember the purpose of miracles in the story of Acts. The purpose of miracles in the story of Acts is always to support the message, to support the Word. In fact, Peter sets us straight on a straight path on this back in chapter 2 when he preached the Pentecost message. From chapter 2, is in your sermon notes, speaking of Jesus here, Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through you and in your midst as you yourselves know. So in the same case with Jesus, God did these mighty miracles through Jesus in order to validate what Jesus was saying. As people would see the mighty miracles and they would hear Jesus' testimony, what He said was validated by what He did. Same thing in the story of the Acts. God is validating the message of the apostles through the miracles that He's doing through them. As people hear their message and they see the mighty miracles that they're doing, their testimony is validated in their hearts and in their minds. And so... The last number of chapters, Paul, Paul hasn't performed any miracles because he's been speaking to people that he didn't necessarily need the miracles to validate what he's been saying. He's been speaking mostly to Jews. But now he comes to the island of Malta, and the Maltese people, they don't know the Hebrew Scriptures, they don't know the Jewish God. And so therefore, God now performs miracles at the hands of Paul to validate what he's going to tell them. So he, he heals Publius' father, but then he doesn't stop there. Verse 9, and when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. Now that reminds us back of chapter 5. When so many people were being healed at the hands of Peter and John, remember people were bringing people, sick people, so that the shadow of Peter, Peter would pass over them, or maybe they could touch a rag that was Peter's and be healed, because so many people were being healed on such a regular basis. They were validating the testimony of Peter and John. So, all the people, apparently all the sick people on the island were brought 
to Paul and all of them were healed. I bet they're listening to the Gospel now. I bet when Paul tells them about Jesus Christ who suffered and died and rose from the dead to atone for their sins, I bet that they're all ears now. So he heals all those who had diseases and they were cured. Verse 10, they also honored us greatly and when we were about to sail, they put us on board, put on board whatever we needed. So they supplied them for the final leg of the journey. Then verse 11, after three months, which makes it now February, which remember the, the dangerous season for sailing on the Mediterranean, Mediterranean is over in February. So now it's the season of the year that they can sail again safely. So after three months, we set sail in a ship that, we, that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, so it's another wheat ship from Egypt, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Now a footnote there on your Bible says that their names were Castor and Pollux. Those were two Greek gods that were supposedly offspring of Zeus, and their job, so to speak, was to protect seagoing people. So on the front of this ship is this, these figureheads of these two Greek gods. So, verse 12, putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Petioli. Petioli, I think it's pronounced. Now, Petioli is a town, still, still exists, it's a town that's on the very tip of the toe of the Italy boot. So again, you picture in your mind the boot of Italy. The very toe of that is a little town called Petili. It's about eight miles from Naples. So Paul is now on the continent of Europe. He's now in Italy. Verse 14, there we found brothers or fellow believers. So it seems like sometimes Paul just finds believers everywhere he goes. Remember, he was back in Sidon. There was believers there. But then he goes to Malta. And there's no believers there. Malta was just one day, one day over the water, over the Mediterranean from Italy. So he finds believers here in Patioli, and he stays there with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. Now, I honestly don't know why Paul, or I'm sorry, Luke said that there. We came to Rome because they're not in Rome yet. So I don't know why he said that at that point. They're still 150 miles from Rome. And we'll see that that's the case from verse 15. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. So Paul is now in Italy, and he stays here in Petili for a week. And word that Paul is here seems to have spread all over Italy, so much so that believers in Rome leave Rome and meet Paul on the way. Paul has a 150-mile walk, or 140-mile walk, from Petili to Rome. And about halfway there, a little over halfway there, some of the believers from Rome meet him at a place called Forum of Appius, which is about 43 miles outside of Rome. And then some, some more believers meet them at another place called Three Taverns, which was about 33 miles from Rome. So these believers hear that Paul is now in Italy, and they're so enthusiastic and they're so excited that they come out and meet him as he and the soldiers and the others are making their way into Rome. And they meet him, and they greatly encourage him, as we would expect. It says that uh, Paul thanked God and took courage, so it was very encouraging for Paul to be met along the way by these believers who thought so much of Paul and were so excited that they walked, some of them, 40 miles to meet the Apostle Paul, or 80 miles round trip, which must have been tremendously encouraging for Paul. And that's a good thing. However, I want to make a connection here. And the reason I want to make this connection is I want to show us that 
the encouragement of other believers will always be inferior to our great encourager. These believers thought a great deal of Paul and they went out of their way to meet him and encourage him. However, let's make a connection now to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul's going to write the letter to the Philippians. Remember, we studied Philippians a couple years ago and we, we saw that when we studied that book that Paul wrote that in the situation in which he now is. When he gets to Rome, he's going to be imprisoned. We'll talk about that next, more next week. But while he's in prison in Rome on this trip, he writes the letter to the Philippian Christians. And in that letter, particularly in the first chapter, he talks about the Roman Christians in this way. From your sermon notes, Philippians 1, Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. He's speaking there of the Roman Christians. But others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, but sincerely, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So, what Paul is saying is that some of the Christians in Rome, some of the Roman Christians, are using the opportunity of Paul being imprisoned, they're using that to slander Paul and to destroy his reputation. Now, Paul's careful to say not all of them, but some of them. So, it, apparently, some of those who came out to meet Paul when he first arrived at Rome, over the course of the next two years that he was in prison, they've now turned against Paul. And they're using the opportunity to slander Paul and to destroy Paul. It reminds us, doesn't it, of when Jesus came into Jerusalem? Remember on past, uh, the, uh, the uh, triumphal entry? Passover week, He comes into Jerusalem and people are laying down palm branches and they're shouting, Hosanna! And then within a week, most of them had turned on Jesus. The same thing's kind of true with Paul here. When he comes to Rome, the Roman Christians are overly enthusiastic about him. But over the course of time, not only do they seem to forget about him, but they seem to actually turn against him. Now let's make another connection to Paul's second letter to Timothy. Paul's second letter to Timothy, he's also going to write from a prison in Rome. However, Paul was imprisoned in Rome two times. This time that we're reading about here, Paul will not be martyred. He'll be released. He'll go on another missionary journey, we believe. But he'll return to Rome and be imprisoned, and that imprisonment will be much harsher than this one, and that one will, will end in his martyrdom. However, Rome, Paul will still be imprisoned in the same city, and in his, letter to, in his second letter to Timothy, he's going to write about the same Christians in the same church. And look at what he says about them in 2 Timothy 1. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. So, Paul's in prison in Rome, and this, this Philippian Christian by the name of Onesiphorus comes to find Paul. However, Paul says that Onesiphorus couldn't find me easily. He had to search earnestly to find me. Now, what is true about a prisoner in prison that you visit? What's true is you know where he is, don't you? A prisoner you've never visited, you may not know where he is. But if you've visited a prisoner in prison, you know where he is. Now, Onesiphorus comes to Rome looking for Paul. And you naturally make the assumption that he comes to the church, to the Christians in Rome, and they're like, I don't know, he may be in that prison over there. He may be in that one on that side of the city. He may be on that one on the south side of the city or the east. We don't know. 
So Onesiphorus had to search and search and search to find Paul. What that says to us is that the Christians in Rome have completely abandoned Paul. We saw that when we studied through the letter of Philippians, that the Roman Christians were turning against Paul and many of them had abandoned Paul. In fact, in the second letter to Timothy, Paul will say, Luke is the only one here who cares for me. I say all of that to make the point that people run hot and cold. People are fickle. Even God's people. And we run hot and we run cold. And sometimes we're hot, but usually our heat will cool off. For example, we talk often of some of those who are in prison for Christ, but you may remember this lady here. Remember this lady? Her name is Asia Bibi. She's a Pakistani Christian. She was imprisoned in Pakistan for speaking of Jesus to some co-workers. She's under sentence of death. She was imprisoned in 2009. We talked about her a lot. In fact, a lot of Christians talked about her a lot. Not so much anymore. We've moved on to other things, haven't we? We've moved on to other tragedies, other disasters, other people, other concerns. You probably recognize this picture here. That's Pastor Saeed Abedini. You hear of him a lot more now because he was just arrested a little over a year ago, July of 2012, placed in the most notorious torture prison of Iran. Uh, an Iranian-born U.S. citizen illegally imprisoned in Iran, tortured because of his faith. You hear more about him, but you know what? You don't hear nearly as much about him as the few months after he was arrested. For the first three or four or five months after his arrest, Christians were talking about him all the time. Now, not so much so. Because people run hot and cold. Tragedies wear off. Concerns, we grow dull to them. Or was it two weeks ago that we were so concerned about the Syrian people? How much you hear about that today? We've moved on to the next tragedy now. People run hot and people run cold. And though God's people may offer you encouragement, always remember your true encouragement is the encourager. The one who will never leave you and never forsake you. He is the one whose encouragement never grows cold. You may receive encouragement from fellow believers, and when you do, take that for what it is, enjoy it, feed off of it, grow from it, find comfort in it, but never let yourself think that your encouragement depends on other people. Because the encouragement of other people will grow faint. Always Look to the encourager, which is where Paul looked. He always looked to the encourager who visited him in his prison cell in Jerusalem, the one who would never leave him and never forsake him. Even though the Roman Christians will, even though the Corinthian Christians did, even though the Galatian Christians did, Paul always looked to his encourager. Now, one more thing in verse 16, and then we'll be done. So Paul thanked God and took courage. Verse 16, and when we came into Rome, so Paul is now officially in Rome, when we came to Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. So he's imprisoned here in Rome, but it's not a normal imprisonment. He's given more freedom, more privilege, more luxury than a typical prisoner. Again, Paul will return later to Rome and be imprisoned a second time. That one will be much more harsh. That one will result in his martyrdom. But this one is fairly comfortable. He's allowed to get his own place, to pay for his own apartment but he has a Roman soldier that's with him, guarding him at all times. 
But what I want us to notice is what Paul does with this opportunity. This inconvenience, this, uh, this, this Roman soldier that's with him at all times, Paul didn't, didn't view that so much as an inconvenience as he viewed it as a gospel opportunity. You see, every few hours, he would have a brand new captive audience that would come in and, and couldn't leave him, was forced to listen to whatever he had to say, and I think that it's safe to say that Paul spoke about Jesus to every single Roman guard that came there. In fact, I think that we know that to be true because if we look again to the letter to the Philippians, again, Paul is writing about this setting, this context. He says this in Philippians 1, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. In other words, I have talked to Jesus about so many Roman guards that all of them now know what I'm about. And we know that in the letter to the Philippians, Paul goes on to say how many of the Roman guards have come to faith in Christ. Even those in the household of Caesar have come to faith in Christ. Why? Because Paul did not view this inconvenience as something to be remorseful over. But rather, he viewed this inconvenience in his life as a gospel opportunity and used it to its fullest. So let's finish just by asking ourselves the question, do we view the inconveniences of our life as gospel opportunities, or do we view them as just things that we just need to get through? Standing in line at the DMV office. Raise your hand if you like to do that. It's an inconvenience to all of us. Is it just that to you? Or is it a gospel opportunity? Trying to find somebody in Walmart that will help you. Few of us like that. Do you view that as just an inconvenience or an opportunity to speak the gospel? Sitting on the side of the road with blue lights flashing in your mirror. Just an inconvenience or a gospel opportunity? Paul made a dramatic impact on the imperial guard because he viewed what many of us would consider a terrible inconvenience into his life as gospel opportunities to speak the gospel the Savior who died for him while he was God's enemy, loved him enough to suffer and die for him, took upon himself all of Paul's sin debt and gave to Paul all of his righteousness. Goes to the grave, rises on the third day. Paul never got over that. He never got over the Damascus Road. He never got over the cross. And so therefore, he viewed every opportunity in his life, even a two-week hurricane on the open sea, he viewed it as a gospel opportunity.